This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NAGM Catalyst, and today our focus is on the unstable healthcare workforce and organizational culture. How can we preserve safety and improve morale during a time when turnover is so high and most organizations are relying upon travelers and other organizations are still using plenty of temporary personnel just to keep the lights on? We're talking with two experienced and thoughtful leaders, Gary Kaplan, board trustee from Common Spirit Health, and until recently, the longtime leader of Virginia Mason Medical Center, and Deva Lynn from the board of the Anesthesia Patient and Safety Foundation, who has played a variety of other roles as a leader in quality and safety. They've been thinking about the various pressures on the workforce, which don't really need recapping for this audience but they have some clear and valuable thoughts on how the critical pressures in the workforce impact patient safety and culture and what to do about it. Gary, let's start with a simple question. Who are these gig workers and how do you categorize them? Well, thanks, Tom, and it's great to be with you uh, today. I think we've had this mindset that uh, it was uh, kind of a homogeneous group of individuals, but in fact, not all gig workers are alike, and they're actually uh, a quite heterogeneous group. Um, McKinsey has actually taken a stab at trying to uh, characterize them uh, for us, and um, I think the ones we think about uh, most commonly are the free agent gig workers. These are people who uh, previously may have had careers in uh, established organizations. They maybe uh, had a bad experience um, and decided, you know, maybe I can find a more flexible, different way of, of working. And that represents about 30% uh, of the gig workers. Uh, there's also um, uh, three other categories that McKinsey identified and um, would start with, say, the reluctant uh, a gig worker. These are people who left an organization, uh, perhaps uh, it wasn't a good fit or uh, they felt a need to do something uh, different. Uh, and the gig worker concept just kind of fell in their lap. But I think they would be uh, uh, quite willing potentially to go back into organizational life in a different setting. There's also, obviously, particularly in today's environment, the financially strapped individual who might prefer full-time work and yet realize uh, and realize during the past uh, few years that they could actually be much, uh, they could be um, more financially uh, satisfied, make more money, and have the uh, flexibility uh, that comes with being a gig worker. That was only uh, in their assessment, 16%. And then finally, the casual gig worker who kind of just wants to pick up some extra money. It's much easier to do that on a gig basis than trying to arrange those kinds of uh, uh, work um, situations within an existing organization. And so these categories are interesting. Um, and yet when we, Della and I looked at them in some detail, we realize that all four categories lend themselves to potentially becoming a loyal, committed uh, uh, team players on a permanent uh, and perhaps full-time basis. 
but it's how the organization approaches each of these uh, that I think uh, is most instructive and has the most potential uh, to add high quality permanent staff uh, to, to one's organization. Well, Gary, one of the great things about you, or two of the great things, are that your feet are on the ground, but you are an optimist, and your last comments uh, are consistent with both. Uh, but Della, let me turn to you next and, and say that you know, it often seems like people are blaming everything that, that, that could go wrong on transient workers, but what do we actually know about their impact on safety, quality, and culture? So Tom, th thank you for uh, having us here today. And you know we've heard a lot right, about workforce challenges as being the crushing number one problem for hospital these days. And so I think this is a provocative question for us. Does having a gig economy workforce, um, and is there an inflection point, have an impact and how much of an impact on patient safety, quality, and culture? So my bias is yes, it does. Um, and that a big piece of this is that we tend to think of this workforce challenge as a transactional challenge, but our organizations are um, simultaneously social and technical systems. So this is a relational relationship challenge. You know, we often say kind of quote unquote, um, how, do we do, um, how do we do things here? That's, that's uh, what culture is. Um, but at a granular level, it's really how do we problem solve here? How do we manage conflict? How do we come to decisions? How do we identify failures, both catastrophic and ordinary? And, and how do we respond to ambiguity? So thinking about these important intersections and where we operate, having even a small number of temporary staff on a team, I think can have important implications and fresh challenges on culture. So as far as the actual aggregate data goes, um, kind of a mixed bag. So there's a study out there from Johns Hopkins that they use national MedMarks data and they found or they concluded that ED medication errors were more likely to reach the patient with temporary staff than permanent staff. It's actually an odds ratio of 1.4. Um, a different uh, longitudinal population study found hazard of death increased incrementally for each day a patient had uh, temporary RN staff care. And then I'll mention a, a third study, over 100 hospitals that suggested an inflection point, so reflecting kind of what I just said earlier, of increased harm when units were staffed with more than 15% temporary staff. But, but to be fair, in contrast, there are other multi-hospital aggregate studies that have shown that units with agency-employed temporary RNs do not show differences in mortality or failure to rescue, um, especially when the data is normalized for the work environment. So in the end, my bias is yes, but. Um, yes, but, because it doesn't have to be a negative effect. I think that depends on how organizations frame and manage this. Well, you know, what you say is very consistent with what I've seen in my uh, my work in my other job working at Press Ganey, where you know, we know that, yes, it may be true that having, you know, a large percentage of temporary uh, staff is not as good as having 100 percent full time uh, regular people. But it's better than having inadequate staffing. So I think your yes, but framing is you know, very much the right attitude. 
Now, since we're likely to be living with gig workers for the foreseeable future, what do we do? Uh, and I very much like the six component model that you two have framed. And uh, so I'd love for you to uh, explain it for our audience here. Uh, what the, the letters are, the, the six letters in retool, R-E-T-O-O-L. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tick through them for our audience. You know, Gary, if you can go first, what sure. does the R stand for? Sure, happy to do that. And, uh, you know, even we optimists uh, understand that uh, it's about execution. And and so what we how we behave as an organization will determine whether or not we're able to attract and retain uh, these gig workers on a more permanent basis. And so we started with reimagine. And when we talk about reimagine, we're really talking about onboarding and recruitment. Uh, Gig workers, it turns out, follow a, a quite a different path uh, in their onboarding. In fact, uh, just as some of us have thought that maybe the temporary travelers have a little bit more of a freelancing attitude, I think we in organizational life have also taken a bit of, have a bit of an attitude, and uh, we we send our gig workers to uh, security, get their ID badge, get their set up on the EHR learn a bit, a little bit about the IT, and we shorten and abridge the onboarding process as much as possible because the name of the game is getting these people on the front lines where they're badly needed. And so we, we think that reimagining an onboarding process that's universal, that applies to everyone, that um, is values-driven, both the individual's values and the organization's values, and, and helping people to understand the culture, the environment that they're coming, being part of, and the importance in many of our organizations about giving agency uh, to that gig worker. So not calling them a short timer, you're just filling a slot, but we want you to be a team member. We want to orient you so that you're able to be a team member, and we always want your best thinking. Be an active idea generator uh, uh, for whatever time you're with us in this organization. So how we approach them on day one will be critically important. Well, that onboarding process for temporary workers is, I think, quite different from what most places are doing. Uh, but let's suppose you've done that. You know, Della, what comes next? The next letter is E, I know, but uh, what does right. E stand for and what follows after the onboarding? Right. So E stands for engage, maybe a bit of a buzzword, but in this, we're sort of asking the important question, how and where might we intentionally think about engaging with the gig worker? And to Gary's point, really everybody, how might we rethink about um, after the onboarding process. So we have two suggestions, something we've called middle boarding and the buddy system. So, so what is middle boarding? So like it might sound, it's not onboarding and it's not offboarding. Um, research actually suggests that at three months, people begin to reflect and make decisions whether to stay or leave. So how might HR and leaders tune in to this three month milestone? intentionally middle boarding at that three months could be a potentially powerful win-win, providing active listening and active feedback to the hire, as well as provide learning insights for the leaders. 
And then our second one um, is to intentionally engage by employing a buddy system for all employees. It's, it's basically a takeoff from what the military implements with their battle buddies, which they put in place for performance and safety and well-being. So a buddy system facilitates onboarding and a sense of connection, uh, a relationship um, with organizational life and, and with the organization. We actually encouraged um, buddying up with a battle buddy during COVID when the emotional and physical and isolation of work was, was huge. So that's, those are at least two things we're thinking about for that letter E. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's like giving a, a, a bolus uh, medication, you know, after the initial loading dose, uh, right. Uh, right. which I'm sure most <laughs> people have, have not done. Uh, all right. So Della, the next letter is T. Is this something beyond the buddying that you're talking about? Right. So teaming, um, and I'll, I'll describe that a little bit later here, but it's uh, a term that Amy Ebenson uh, coined. Um, but this is our reflection of what does our middle bench of leaders, managers, and supervisors look like when it comes to having those essential skills of psychological safety and inclusiveness? What do our managers and supervisors, how are their essential skills around being open to showing vulnerability? What um, are our leaders and again, managers, supervisors, essential skills around their tolerance, their true tolerance for ambiguity? So successful teaming means nurturing and building this middle bench. Um, so where am I going with this? There is supporting data today that team consistency correlates with improved outcomes. In the operating room, where I often live as an anesthesiologist, this can mean improved long-term morbidity outcomes. It can mean shorter OR times. It can mean reduced 30-day readmissions and costs. So stable teams develop and create a meta-memory. Uh, it helps them with their information sharing, implicit, explicit coordination, decision-making, dynamic learning. So when we have high turnover and we have gig workers, we don't have the luxury of meta-memory. So we have to step up our game to this concept of teaming, something, as I said, Amy Edmondson coined and basically defined as teamwork on the fly. So as opposed to teams, teaming is a verb. And at the center core, successful teaming actively practices psychological safety. And I would say psychological safety on steroids. So basically a gig worker or really anybody, but you know, we're focusing on this conversation about the gig worker needs to feel like they can come to work and be included, they can contribute and they can challenge if needed without being shut down. So one of my favorite questions for a new gig worker in the OR is, um, what's something that has puzzled you about how we do things since you've been here? That is a really interesting set of ideas. And of course, I'm sure many of our, of our audience members are thinking we should be doing that for everyone in our workforce, uh, but especially uh, making it an activity that ha happens for uh, our, our gig workers is uh, you know, definitely a new idea and an intriguing one. So Della, the next letter is O. Right, it's the first of our two O's in retool. So this first O is overlooked. And overlooked means don't low overlook your own strengths. So the question here is how might we create an in-house gig experience? 
So if you're a system, can you create an in-house travel staffing program where staff stay within your system, but can match to a varied experience, like another hospital or another geography within your system? Um, another example would be, do you have the flexibility and creativity to create what we call soft landing jobs? Ones where it, if it doesn't work out for the individual, they can actually return to their existing role. So it gives them the agency for experimentation and, and growth. Um, and then a third idea is, can we be flexible enough to create sort of, let's say, short-term high-intensity opportunities for staff approaching retirement? So instead of retiring and losing that individual to being a freelance gig worker somewhere else, they actually stay within our organization. So in the end, overlooked means take a step back and ask, how might we? Okay, Gary, the second O is yours. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, um, it was we we termed the O obviously to make the mnemonic work, but it's an overarching learning culture is what we wanted to emphasize. Um, we have uh, in healthcare uh, cultural challenges, and one of the things we've found is that an environment that empowers frontline caregivers, uh, that gives them agency, as I mentioned earlier, to innovate. Um, one of the things we learned, as you know, Tom, at Virginia Mason over the years with our Virginia Mason production system was the people closest to the work are best able to uh, understand where the defects are, where the opportunities for improvement are, and where the innovation can occur. And it's having a system in place, a culture in place, uh, where that is the way forward. And when an, a, a new team member enters that culture, um, more often than not, they will say, wow, people really care what we say around here. People really want to know uh, what the so-called rocks in our shoes are. And we used to say uh, that team members have two jobs, run your business and improve your business. So that creating that learning environment, robust feedback loops, uh, places where staff feel very engaged and it fits together into a learning cycle and uh, engaging traveling staff. And we've got some, had some experience with this at Virginia Mason in our improvement work um, was really uh, something that I think developed a tremendous affinity and has led to some people remaining long-term with the organization. So how do we acculturate and bring the same benefits that come to uh, full-time workers in terms of what they're able to do uh, and in, in their work. Um, and, you know, most of us want to work in an environment where we feel a sense of some control. And uh, that learning culture is a great way to do that. Then leads to a better way forward for patients uh, and for staff. Okay, and Gary, the last letter is L, and I can guess what that stands for. Yes, uh, you know me very well, Tom, and you know that I believe that leadership is a fundamental, uh, absolutely necessary uh, part of a successful organization. And it's the leaders in the organization that it really set the culture. And uh, for, these, for this discussion, um, it's the leaders that will determine whether an organization is 
uh, aligned and tremendous and, and, and focused uh, on safety, for example, or on quality. It's not just identifying it as a goal, espousing it, everybody here, we're going to work on quality and safety, but it's walking the talk. And it's in fact, as Edgar Schein says, the, you know, the cultural organizational culture uh, guru, who both Dell and I, I came to know quite well, it's the leader behavior. And the most important things le thing leaders do is attend to culture. So it all comes back to uh, this learning culture, uh, leaders um, establishing it and reinforcing it at every opportunity, uh, transparency being embedded in how we do our work. Uh, and the result is an empowered workforce that feels like they're coming to work every day with the ability to make a difference uh, in the lives of the people we serve. And that's why we all went into medicine. And so uh, we think that this is uh, this simple mnemonic and the behaviors attached to it can really help take what has been um, for many a costly and somewhat frustrating uh, gig economy and turn it into something really um, special in organizational life. It's an opportunity uh, that's in front of us in all of our organizations across the country. Well, Gary and Della, you know, I want to thank you for your work articulating this. Uh, as you know, as you probably know, I love when people can create frameworks for taking on challenges that may seem overwhelming and in their complexity. And the framework may not be perfect. Uh, it hasn't been tested in randomized trials, but it it gives people a way to uh, approach their work and, and come on in on Monday and plunge in. Uh, actually, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a model that my colleague and uh, co-chair of the board for NEGM Catalyst, Michael Porter, um, laid out early in his career, uh, you know, thinking of strategy as, you know, what the value you're creating for a customer. The customer here is the gig worker, and the value you're creating is making an organization a better place for them and make them want to stay. And and what and the next thing that Porter laid out were the that was the concept of the value chain of activities, and you're laying out a set of um, six activities that ought to be focuses for organizations uh, if you want to try to create that value for gig workers. Doing one of them is not enough. Doing two of them is not enough. But if you're doing all of them, I think that you've got a much better shot at holding on to your personnel and um, and thriving because of that. So thank you so much. I know this won't be the last thoughtful contribution from you both, and I'll look forward to the next one. We, we will as well. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks so much for having us, and thanks for the great work uh, you you are doing, Tom, and uh, all of the team at NJM Catalyst. I echo that. Thank you so much, Tom.